You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. We're continuing in our series that we started last week for three or four weeks in the prophets. We're, and the, the idea of, our, of this series is to give a one-off sort of aerial view of the major, what are so-called writing prophets of the Old Testament. Last week, we spent our time in Isaiah. Today we will be in the book of Jeremiah. Next week, Lord willing, we'll do Ezekiel, and if, and if the series uh, goes on, we'll, we'll move uh, to kind of an aerial view of all the, of the minor prophets, which will have its challenges, but I, th- I think we'll be able to make some headway. Um, so today we're in Jeremiah. Before we turn to this, let me, let me pray. And if you have a Bible near you, wherever you happen to be, um, that would be great if you grabbed it, because we, we may sort of piddle around and, and look in various places in Jeremiah uh, while, we're, while we're together. So let's pray, and we'll, and we'll dive in. Our Father, we're grateful to you this morning that you have given us the opportunity and the gift of a, of a life given to the study of your word. Its, its depths are of an infinite reach because it witnesses and speaks of you. And I pray that in this moment that we are in nationally and even within our own sort of local sphere and in, in the personal existence of our own lives, that God, you would draw us again into your word, that you would open us up to the hope of the gospel, and that you would shape us, Lord, by what your revelation is rather than by the, by the hounding uh, voices in our, in our world. So give us wisdom, we pray, and give us humility as we dive into Jeremiah today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Jeremiah this morning, and if, you know, reading and interpreting the Bible can be compared to flying on an airplane, uh, then when it comes to the book of Jeremiah, the pilot comes over the loudspeaker and tells us all to fasten our seatbelts. Jeremiah is a wild ride, and, and a challenging ride for, for a lot of reasons. Um, Jeremiah is not a book for the faint of heart. Uh, Jeremiah as a prophetic witness and really Jeremiah as a prophetic person uh, seizes uh, its readers and forces us uh, to wrestle with who God is and the character of God as both being merciful, quick to show mercy, long-suffering, and severe uh, both at the same time. So when we look at Jeremiah, we're going to try to look at it from a larger perspective today and come at it from uh, various points of entry. The the first thing uh, to kind of set Jeremiah within a historical context is to think about um, the moment in time and really the, the unique moment in time that Jeremiah the prophet ministered in the kingdom of Judah. So he is, he's a prophet in the south. Uh, the northern kingdom had already been destroyed in 722 BC with its capital at Samaria. Jeremiah is ministering in the south in Judah with Jerusalem as its capital city. And he comes to his uh, prophetic ministry at a young age uh, and in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. So we locate this somewhere around uh, 629 BC. And we have a description of Jeremiah's call right at the beginning of the, of the book. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, verse 4, 
uh, says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Now this is actually a pretty unique way of phrasing a prophetic call within all of the Bible. Um, Here uh, God tells Jeremiah, Before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. Uh, In other words, he's finding out right now that his very existence and his reason for being is that God has brought him into the world to be a prophetic mouthpiece, a divine, uh, divinely appointed agent for the word of the Lord given to uh, the people of God. And of course, you know the scene, for those of you who have read this before, how does Jeremiah retort? Oh, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a child. I'm just a youth, probably in, in modern terms, an adolescence. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for to all to whom I send you shall go, and whatever I command you to speak, you shall speak. I mean, this is kind of the Lord taking a parental role with Jeremiah saying, you can say whatever you want to say, Jeremiah, but you're going to do what I call you to do. And then God gives Jeremiah words in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 8 that sound familiar, especially if you know about the call of Moses back in in the book of Exodus. And these are the words that are used, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now that's the language that God gave to Moses on his way to Egypt, don't be afraid of them, I will be with you to deliver you. And then verse 9 says, the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put words in your mouth. So I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And then we have these series of infinitives or verbal forms that are describing the character of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. And this is what he's called to do, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. And when you think about that, that's four infinitive phrases, that's four to-do phrases that are all negative in orientation. Plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing. And I think that speaks to the character, the primary character of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. He's bringing a word of judgment against the people of God in a very particular moment in their life lived before God and the surrounding nations. He's, called, he's bringing them to their moment of judgment. It's, it's one of the reasons why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. The burden of the prophetic word on Jeremiah is stark and it's heavy, plucking up, breaking down, destroying and overthrowing. But there are two final infinitives here in verse 10 that also shape Jeremiah's ministry toward a prophetic and hopeful look to the future, to build and to plant. So this is what Jeremiah is called to do, to bring a word of judgment and a word of hope at the same time in the midst of a very unique moment in Israel's history. And it's worth talking um, a little bit about the moment in time, here we are in the late 7th century B.C., that Jeremiah is ministering, because Jeremiah's ministry covers um, the reign of Josiah all the way up into what we call the exile, when the Babylonians come and destroy Judah and the southern kingdom, And into the exilic moment itself where Jeremiah remains back in Jerusalem while the exiles have been taken off to Babylon. And by all accounts, and we're not, things get kind of fuzzy toward the end of Jeremiah's life, but it seems to indicate that Jeremiah is taken by force to Egypt in his own exile 
and he never uh, returns home. So let me say a little bit about um, the historical moment in which Jeremiah ministered. It's a cataclysmic moment by all accounts. Some of you may recall uh, the reform movements of Josiah, the king in Judah, who is, is without doubt probably one of the most prominent and important kings that Judah ever knew. In fact, in, first, in Second Kings, uh, Josiah is described as a king that more than any other did what was right in the sight of the Lord, following the Lord, and this is the phrase that's used in Second Kings, with all of his heart, his soul, and his might which is, it sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. Those words are used to describe Josiah and Josiah's reign. No one followed after God like Josiah did. And what did Josiah do? He discovered the law again and constituted the law, reconstituted the law back within the people of God. He rooted out idolatrous practices. He restored the temple cult to the purity of its administration. But unfortunately, Judah as a nation had already gone too far. And the way in which 2 Kings describes it is that Manasseh, who was the grandfather of Josiah, Manasseh's idolatry and acts of injustice were so profound in Judah that the die was cast God's judgment would move against his people in due course. And after Josiah goes off of the scene, uh, eventually that is what occurs. And uh, what, what ends up happening is in the larger geopolitical moment in the ancient Near East, the great Neo-Assyrian Empire that had brought the northern kingdom to an end, they now are coming undone here at the end of the 7th century by their neighbors to the south, the Babylonians, with figures like Nebuchadnezzar. And then, um, his, uh, and then the one that, to follow him is Nebuchadnezzar, a name that we know very well. And Nebuchadnezzar eventually brings his own um, empirical arm, and there's a lot of interesting dynamics with Egypt and other surrounding nations, Ammon and Moab as well, that are going on in this time. But to simplify it, Nebuchadnezzar comes onto the scene and he makes Judah his own vassal. They become subdued to the larger Babylonian empire. He sets on the throne a puppet king by the name of Zedekiah. And this puppet king was there basically as the extension of Babylonian rule. And he was meant to give treaty and he was meant to pay taxes to Nebuchadnezzar back in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar started having his own political problems back in Babylon. And Zedekiah thought, this is kind of obviously a pre-internet world. Zedekiah thought, out of sight, out of mind, I'm going to stop paying my tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to align ourselves with Egypt over against um, the, uh, the Babylonians. And as you know this, with Nebuchadnezzar, nothing was ever out of sight, out of mind. Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC comes back into Judah, sets up camp around the city, and destroys the city in totality, including the tearing down of its walls and the destruction of its temple. The only analogy, and this analogy breaks down, but the only analogy that to my mind would help us understand the significance of the destruction of the temple um, in this world, because the temple was the symbolic um, uh, uh, material um, visualization of all of Israel's understanding of the world um, would be seeing, for example, our Capitol building come tumbling down in some raid or something like that. It, it, this, it was a cataclysmic moment. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he destroys Judah, he destroys the walls of the city and the temple, and then they're left now in their exilic period. And what we find 
is, is Jeremiah ministering within this, this particular moment in time in Judah's history. And, it goes, and it's without doubt that these are the most challenging and cataclysmic moments in the whole of Judah's history. This is when Judah is coming uh, to an abrupt end um, under the judging hand of God via the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar's um, uh, hoarding armies. So it's hard. I mean, I would say Jeremiah, you get into Jeremiah and you can feel the weightiness of what's happening with Jeremiah's word because Jeremiah is telling the people of God, in effect, you think that this is just the Babylonians that are coming against you, but this is not merely the Babylonians. This is God's hand of judgment at work against us because of our idolatrous practices against him. So that gives you just a slight sense of the historical moment that Jeremiah ministered in. Um, Now I'd just like to take a few seconds and think about the canonical shaping, the way in which the book of Jeremiah is shaped as, as a whole. Because when you take into account Jeremiah's historical situation, you understand why he's a weeping prophet. I think we'd all be weeping in that moment. Um, You have to speak, Jeremiah did, against the rise of nationalistic optimism. You remind the people of their sin, but to no avail. Jeremiah is physically harassed. The heavy burden of the word of the Lord was on his heart and his mind all the time. The normal joys and sorrows of our life, uh, marrying and burying, aren't allowed to be enjoyed or grieved in their normal capacity. Life as it once was is over. Today is the day of God's judgment. And in the haunting words of Johnny Cash, the man has come around. So yes, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. But it may come as a surprise then to hear this from um, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, a man by the name of Ronald Clements. This is what Clements says about the book of Jeremiah. In a, stri- in a quite striking fashion, he says, who has in popular estimation been remembered as, quote, the weeping prophet, was the prophet through whom the message of hope for the rebirth of Israel came to the fore. So even though Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and rightly so, his prophetic message is also riddled with hope for the rebirth of Israel and a future redemption that would come in time when God would establish his covenant once again for his people. We'll turn back to this before our time is over this morning. So um, as, as nice and linear, the historical portrait that I gave you at the beginning about the Neo-Assyrians, and then you have the Babylonians come onto the scene, and then you have the exile of Judah. You have a kind of nice linear historical pattern. If you take that linear historical conceptual apparatus to the book of Jeremiah and try to read it from beginning to end with that linear frame in mind, you will be hopelessly disappointed. Uh, John Bright, in his commentary on Jeremiah, famously describes the whole book as, and I'm quoting him here, a hopeless hodgepodge thrown together without any discernible principles of arrangement. In other words, if I can put this in other terms, uh, John Bright says, Jeremiah, from its shaping canonically, chapters 1 to the end, is a mess. Um, 
Uh, Robert Carroll, another commentator, says, the reader who is not confused by reading the book of Jeremiah has not understood it, end quote. Uh, That's always an encouraging thing to hear before you read a book. If you read this book and you're not confused, then you don't understand it. So Jeremiah is a challenge. But I think more recent scholarship on Jeremiah has helped the readers of this book see that its internal structure is thematically and theologically shaped, not according to the principles of linear or temporal logic, but according to a a larger theological shaping that emphasizes the ruin of God's judgment and the subsequent hope of redemption in the future. So the whole book of Jeremiah sort of builds around the ruin of God's judgment and the fact that there is a hope that comes from the fragmentation of the ruins of God's judgment. The first part of the book of Jeremiah, chapters 1 through 25, focus in, in a sort of stringent and, and, and striking way on the coming judgment on Judah. Um, the symbols of, of Judah's idolatrous tendencies are going to be uprooted in chapters 1 through 25. And the second part of Jeremiah, chapters 26 through 52, reveal that judgment is not the final word. There will be a rebuilding out of the ruins. Um, And I think this is an important theological point to be made here. Jeremiah is as honest and as difficult to hear as any prophet there is in the Bible. He speaks the truth and he speaks it clearly. This is a time of God's judgment. But Jeremiah recognizes that the character of God is such that God's judging no, N-O, against his people is never his final word. In fact, God's wrath and his judgment serve a larger purpose to draw men and women back to himself and to be the means, the platform on which God will eventually display the great grace of his redemption and reconciliation. So with that sort of historical view and then canonical view, the first 25 chapters of Jeremiah focus on the coming judgment, 26 through 52 focus that show that there is a hope to be rebuilt out of the ruins of the judgment. I want to end our time together this morning looking at what I think are some important theological themes that emerge out of the book of Jeremiah as a whole. Okay, so here are some of the larger themes that are are going on in Jeremiah. And I'll just give them to you in in bullet point fashion. Number one, Jeremiah as a book emphasizes the sovereignty of God over Israel and the nations. God is in control. The world and all of the principalities and powers of this world are under the providential oversight of God's free and sovereign reach, whether it's Israel or the nations at large. Nebuchadnezzar, who by all accounts is a fearsome and, and, and awesome leader of the ancient Near East, is not depicted that way necessarily in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah Nebuchadnezzar is... Is, is really sort of presented almost as a puppet, a servant in the hand of the Lord to execute his justice. Let me read this verse to you from Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 9. It says this, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, 
and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and listen to how the Lord describes Nebuchadnezzar. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So what you see here is Jeremiah the prophet from the Lord himself describing uh, Nebuchadnezzar as a servant in the hand of the sovereign Lord to execute his own justice. Um, At the end of Jeremiah, in chapters 46 through 51, it attests to us and lets us know that the Lord's sovereignty is not just over Israel. In other words, Adonai, Jehovah, the Lord, is not merely a national God, a national deity, whose divine boundaries are limited by a certain people. No, God is sovereign over the affairs of all the nations, working the movements of history toward his own end. Now, of course, we recognize that we have to leave um, this within the mind and the reach of God's own sovereignty and his own self-knowledge. It is a challenge, an impossible challenge, as William Cooper reminded us in the hymn, uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's an impossibility for you and for I to always put together the dots, to link them up, the dots of providence within the order of human events in history. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to do that. And when people do try to put the the dots together to figure out God's ways in, in real time, Often that leads to, 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 pastoral, to negative pastoral consequences and, and a lot of hurt. But that's not to say the same thing as my knowledge of the situation and God's knowledge of the situation are not to be equated. We leave it in the hands of God to recognize that he is free and he's sovereign and he's moving all things, even the negative and the hard things of human existence and human history, toward a larger and ultimate redemptive end for his own glory and for the salvation of the world. The second theological issue. The question's raised in the book of Jeremiah quite a bit. Why would this be happening to us? And this is one of the challenges that I think the book of Jeremiah presents and and leaves us with. It's a challenge um, to, to come to terms with what the Bible has to say about a complex reality. Uh, So, for example, on the one hand, you had prophets, false prophets in Jeremiah's day, who were saying things like this. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's announcing that the Babylonians are bringing God's judgment. At worst, this is going to be a two-year blip on the screen, but this is a moment of peace. And Jeremiah is saying this is not a moment of peace. This is a moment of God's judgment, and it will not be two years. It'll be 70 years. So you have an internal conflict among the, what we might call the prophetic guild of ancient Judah over what this moment actually is. And here's the challenge. The challenge is the false prophets of Jeremiah's day had some Bible verses on their side, like Psalm 46 and Psalm 48 that were part of the temple worship in Judah for years. And what do those psalms tell us? Those psalms tell us that Zion... The city of God, Jerusalem, cannot be shaken. It's immovable. It's impenetrable. But that Zion theology that the false prophets were speaking about there in the time of Jeremiah, that Zion theology was not 
linked to a larger covenantal theology that read the book of Deuteronomy as well. And the book of Deuteronomy said some things that were very clear. If you do not follow after me and make me your God alone with no other gods, then you have no right to be my people and you have no right to this land. So Jeremiah, and it's not quite the way he frames it, but Jeremiah is in effect calling on the false prophets to read the Bible at large, not just selected bits here or there that fit their own political purposes. This is the challenge giving ourselves to the totality of the biblical witness so that we can submit our minds and our thoughts, our prayers and our practices to what the Bible has to say in all of its various reaches, as difficult as that actually is. So the question is raised in Jeremiah, why is this happening to us? And here's the answer that Jeremiah gives in Jeremiah chapter 5 and Jeremiah chapter 9 and throughout the rest of the book. Because you have followed after other gods... Because you have, and here's the technical term that Jeremiah uses, because you have forsaken me. The people forsook the Lord in an attempt to establish themselves, both politically and religiously, by the reach of their own intellectual and imaginative devices. God asked them to lean on him completely and totally. But the pride of humanity is on full display in the book of Jeremiah. And if we learn anything from the prophets, we learn that only God and his servants are exalted. We talked about that last week with Isaiah. And when his people seek to exalt themselves politically or religiously, which means setting what God has to say to the side, God's revelation is no longer significant. We're going to turn to our own best resources for the um, actualization of our purposes in the world. When you do that and you place God to the margins, God comes in as the great tree feller and he cuts down his people. This is what's happening in Jeremiah. It's 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 a stark warning. So in light of that, third thing, Jeremiah witnesses to the pride of humanity and its negative effects. In the latter book part of Jeremiah, I think Jeremiah chapter 44, 45, we hear Jeremiah say to Baruch, his scribe, if you seek great things for yourself, seek them not. We see in Jeremiah a noxious combination of national and religious self-dependence and self-reliance and the projection of a God that's made in their own image. Pride is on display. So that's a significant issue that we see the word of the Lord addressing in the book of Jeremiah. Another thing that we see in the book of Jeremiah is the effective power of the word of God to do what it intends to do. Um, this happens, we see this in Jeremiah chapter 1. This is a strange verse. Um, I remember even reading this as a teenager and thinking this makes no sense. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And you hear that and you say, what does watching over my word and seeing an almond branch have to do with anything? And the answer is that it doesn't. It's a, it's a play on Hebrew words. And the Hebrew word for almond tree or almond branch is shakade. 
And the word that's used here for God watching over his word is shokeid. So this is a, it's a play on Hebrew words here within Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 11 where God is saying, do you see that shokeid there, that almond tree? Well, I'm going to shokeid, I'm going to oversee and watch my word and it will do what it intends. The cosmos was brought, the whole world was brought into being by the effective power of the word of God. He spoke And it came into existence. What was chaotic became ordered by the power of God's word. And now in Jeremiah, we see the effective power of God's word to undo that cosmos and to bring the chaos of his judgment back in to them again. So what do we learn here from Jeremiah? We learn that God is calling his people to meet him in the ruins of his judgment. This is so crucial. He calls them to meet them in the ruins of his judgment, in repentance and renewal. There's a term that appears in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere through the prophets again and again. It's the Hebrew term shuv, or return, or repent. And it's used repeatedly in the book of Jeremiah, along with a call to circumcise the heart. Listen to my voice, says the Lord through the prophets. Obey my commandments in language familiar to us from the book of Deuteronomy. And the repeated refrain again and again through the, through the book of Jeremiah is, but they would not listen. The acknowledgement of guilt and the injunction to return to the Lord with a humble and contrite heart is a recurring theme, but their hearts are stubborn, they are incurably sick. You know the scene in Jeremiah chapter 18 where Jeremiah is told by the Lord to go to the potter's house. And he watches the potter working the clay on his wheel. And as he watches the potter work, some sort of of error happens. Some sort of uh, uh, problem occurs in in the weaving of the pot. And it comes undone under the potter's hand. He takes the clay and he begins to rebuild it again. And God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, this is an image for you to use for the people. Let them know that I'm the potter, they're the clay. And even though I bring them down in judgment, I can, if they turn to me in repentance, I can build them again into a vessel for my glory. So Jeremiah sees this scene at the potter's house. He goes and he, he relays the message to the people of God. And they tell him in Jeremiah 18 what might be some of the hardest words in all of the Bible. They say, Jeremiah, we know what you say is true, but save your words. They're of no effect. We're going to continue in the ways in which we've been going. So we see a city here. Um, and it, that's marked by an incurable wound. Yet, this is not the final word. If you're going to meet me, Jeremiah tells his people, if you're going to meet me, you're going to meet me in the place of judgment, and there you will also find hope for future mercy and grace. You will meet me in the place where human self-actualization is put to the side, The national flexings of of the muscles give way to a bended knee of contrition before the Lord. You will meet God, Jeremiah tells his people, in the place where guilt is acknowledged, where, to use the language of Luther, where a thing is named for what it is, and it's owned, and where hearts are circumcised in the light of God's claim on us. You will find me in the place of suffering, and in the place of suffering you will experience the assured hope that comes from God's ultimate promises. In Jeremiah, we meet God as a lion, the lion of Judah, and he's roaring. 
Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. In this, in this chapter passage in Jeremiah, we see God on display as one who is merciful and he is severe. He's severe in his judgment and he's merciful in his grace toward those who turn to him in repentance and renewal. So the book of Jeremiah, if I can bring this to a conclusion, the book of Jeremiah has a kind of tyrannical force upon faithful readers. It forces us to look into the mirror and to look at our own selves and our church community. In the Church Dogmatics, Karl Barth ended a very good section on the pride of man uh, by just giving a long exposition of the book of Jeremiah, talking about pride as being humanity's great offense against the living God. And how does Barth end his description of, of, of the pride of humanity? With a long exposition of the book of Jeremiah. So what do we have here? The unwillingness of Judah's political and religious leaders to listen to Jeremiah's word from God. Their unbelief is the great sin of self-sufficiency and self-help. From the beginning, humanity has wanted to be like God. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gives it a try. He fails. Zedekiah gives it a try. He fails. All the while, the religious practices of the people mingle the worship of the Lord with the surrounding idolatries of the neighboring countries. We might as well hedge our religious bets. A little worship of Asherah, the queen of heaven. A little worship of Marduk. A little worship of Baal. A little worship of Dagon. And God will have none of it. We must not worship God in our own image. We must worship him as he reveals himself to us in his son. God's patience with his people is long-suffering, but it does in time give way to the fierceness of his justice and his holiness. And make no bones about it, when you read the book of Jeremiah, you find the Lord warring against his people and the people trembling in response. Judgment is fierce in the face of self-assurance, self-actualization, and pride. And if that were the only word that Jeremiah gave us, then we would be in a heap of trouble, personally, in our church, in the world. But the powerful message of the book, even though it's hemmed in by such darkness, is this, that God's promises to his people cannot be finally thwarted, even by their own faithlessness and disobedience. In the face of the pride of humanity, God stoops low in the person and work of his own son, Jesus Christ, who was the promised Davidic ruler who would come in time. He's the ruler that Jeremiah anticipates in Jeremiah 23 and in Jeremiah 30 through 32. It's Jesus, the Davidic ruler, who humbles himself in the face of our own pride. The attempt of humanity to become like God is met properly with God's becoming a human Israel's pride, our pride, my pride is dealt a death blow in the face of God's own self-abasement. Jesus Christ stooping low, becoming a human, entering into our lives, entering into our suffering, knowing what it is to pray for us because he learned in the school of suffering and obedience. 
Jeremiah anticipates this as the one who is bound up with the sufferings of Israel, as one who experiences her shame and her exile, as one who suffers righteously because of the people's pride and the stubbornness of their own hearts. Israel, the firstborn son of the Lord, has been struck down in an act of judgment in the book of Jeremiah. And Jesus, the firstborn son of the selfsame Lord, has been struck down on the cross. And yet we know the character of God in Jeremiah, the character of God in the book of Exodus, the character of God that's revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that God takes things that are dead and he makes them alive again. God takes the word of his own judgment and makes it the means by which he brings life and salvation and grace to his people. So what does Jeremiah leave us with? This prophetic book so old from so long ago, the 7th century B.C. This is what Jeremiah tells you and me this morning. If we are going to meet God, And I think we're in a moment where we feel acutely the need of God. Then we will meet him in the place of ruin. In the place of ruin is the place where hope and love are born. Self-affirmation, self-dependence, self-actualization are out with contrite and repentant hearts, circumcised hearts, believing hearts, laid bare before the line of Judah, suffering as a lamb on the cross. The opposite of pride is the bowed and grateful heart of faith, and a heart of faith that yields a life of thanksgiving and gratitude. Paul, the apostle, was right, and he was very Jeremianic when he said, if I am forced to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord and in the Lord's grace on his people, a grace that meets us in the place of ruin and in the place of judgment at the cross. So, Lord, thank you for Jeremiah, ancient witness, Lord, from so long ago, and yet a witness that continues to witness right into our current moment of our need to meet you in suffering and in ruin and judgment, knowing, Lord, that it's at the place of the cross where judgment is revealed where your greatest mercy and salvation is offered to those who turn to you with repentant and contrite hearts. Draw our hearts, our minds, our bodies back to you again and yield in us, Lord, yield in me lives of gratitude and thanksgiving in response to what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. You've not left us, Lord, in the ruin of judgment, but you've drawn us to yourself by taking judgment onto your own son so that we can live in the freedom of thanksgiving to love you and to love our neighbor. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.